Are you feeling disconnected? Have you lost trust in your own inner guidance? Are you looking for a deeper meaning in life or the meaning of life? Visit wellnesscontinuing.com for spiritual tools and resources to facilitate your inner growth and help you to connect with your true nature. From a free podcast about consciousness and the afterlife to blog posts, from healing music to dream work and more, Wellness Continuing is the place to elevate your heart and mind. Visit wellnesscontinuing.com. Welcome to Life Continuing, conversations that explore consciousness, healing, and infinite existence. I'm Tanya Berg. For more than 25 years, cardiologist Dr. Pim Van Lommel had studied near-death experiences in patients who survived cardiac arrest. In 1986, while working at Rheinstadt Hospital in the Netherlands, he began studying NDEs along with several colleagues. In 2001, they published their landmark study in the medical journal, The Lancet. As the first scientifically rigorous study of its kind, the article caused an international sensation. Winner of the 2010 Book Award from the Scientific and Medical Network, Van Lommel was granted the Bruce Grayson Research Award on behalf of the International Association of Near-Death Studies in 2005. A year later, the President of India, Dr. A.P.J. Abdul Kalam, awarded him the Lifetime Achievement Award at the World Congress on Clinical and Preventative Cardiology in New Delhi. Van Lommel then wrote the Dutch best-selling book Endless Consciousness in 2007 and later the English bestseller Consciousness Beyond Life. Since then, he has traveled the globe lecturing on the relationship between consciousness and the brain and has written chapters for several books and numerous articles about his research and its implications. Recently, in 2017, he received the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross Award from the Dutch Society of Volunteers in Palliative and Terminal Care. And in 2021, he was the second prize winner of the Bigelow Institute for Consciousness Studies Essay Contest. Join me now to hear my conversation with Dr. Van Lummel about his incredible and scientific research about consciousness beyond life. Welcome, Dr. Van Lummel. It's so lovely to have you here on the show. You're welcome. (laughs) And also, first of all, congratulations on being the second prize essay contest winner from the Bigelow Institute for Consciousness Studies. It was a big surprise for me as well. Was it? Yes. Well, there has been 1,200 people who wanted to join the contest, and at last 204 people were admitted to write an essay, uh, depending on their background, etc. So, uh, and at last, I won the second prize, so not bad. <laughs> not bad at all, I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> so, The near-death experience today is gaining immense popularity and attention. And because of this idea of life after death that experiencers report, and in other words, there's an implication that implies that there's a continuity of consciousness um, and that consciousness seems to be created outside of the brain, which goes against the materialist thought. So when you look deeper into the research as you have over the years, we seem to learn that near-death experiences 
and the idea of consciousness being fundamental is actually nothing new. No, you're totally right. <laughs> but the problem is that the majority of the scientific community, especially in the West, still has this materialist paradigm, which means that the brain produces consciousness. And this is a never proven hypothesis. So especially neuroscientists, philosophers, and psychologists believe, still believe, that consciousness is just part of brain function. And, and the near-death experience research and survivors of cardiac arrest, as we did, proved that it is not an explanation at all, because when the brain doesn't function at all, people can have this enhanced consciousness with the possibility of perception, connection, uh, cognition, uh, memories, emotions, etc. So uh, the question is, we have to reconsider this never proven hypothesis that the brain produces consciousness. Right. And that's just something that's really difficult for materialist scientists to accept at this stage, even, even today. Yes, it's extremely hard for them. It's the dogma. They have raised with the dogma that uh, the materialist dogma, and I was raised as well with the same dogma. I learned as a medical student that consciousness was a product of brain function. So when I first heard the stories about the death experience, at least the, the terminology didn't exist yet, I, I just said to scientific curiosity that how to explain these people that can have memories from the period of unconsciousness. That could, should not be possible at all. When you started your research, this was back in 1986, you did a preliminary pilot study on near-death experiencers. Um, as reported after cardiac arrest. And this was still something that you had difficulty with to try and reconcile. Well, I'm a cardiologist and I was racist to cardiologists and they had a lot of interest in techniques as well. But uh, the story is always that in 1969, when we just started with the cardiopulmonary resuscitation, so the external defibrillation Became possible, and external chest compression became possible. So the first, oh, the first, sorry, the first coronary care units became possible. And uh, I was working as a as an in, uh, rotating intern in in the, in the hospital in, in the Netherlands, and we had a patient who had cardiac arrest, and we resuscitated him with several defibrillations. And after a period of about four minutes, he regained consciousness. We were so happy that we were successful in the resuscitation. It was all new for us, and I was the doctor in charge. But the patient was so extremely disappointed that he told me about going through a tunnel, seeing a light, hearing music, seeing beautiful landscapes, etc. I never forgot this event, but never did anything with it until I read a book by George Ritchie, Return from Tomorrow in 1986 where he describes as a, he died as a medical student in 1943 with a pneumonia. There were not antibiotics available. So he died and his body was uh, covered with the sheet. And the nurse was so upset that this medical student had died that she was able to persuade the medical doctor to give him an injection right into his heart with adrenaline. And after nine minutes, clinical death, he regained consciousness to the extremely surprise of the doctor and nurse. They had a very intense and deep near-death experience. When I read this book, 
that was the moment I started to just to interview patients who had survived the cardiac arrest in the past. And within two years out of 50 patients, 12 patients shared the NDE with me. And it should be impossible because I had learned that when you're unconscious, when you have a cardiac arrest, where the brain doesn't function, where there is no circulation, no breathing, no blood pressure, it's not possible to experience consciousness or to have memories at all. So that's the moment my scientific curiosity started to grow. I would like to love to understand why and how these kind of experiences can occur. And then you did another study with two other scientists a few years later. Uh, well, a prospective study, is that correct? Yes. So until that time, there were retrospective studies. That means here you interview patients who you have met by uh, interviews, met by giving lectures, advertisements in journals, etc. But a lot of people with NIE don't talk about it. They're silent about it. They don't go to a journal and say, well, I had such an experience. So there's a high selection of patients who are included in a retrospective study. And you don't know exactly what the medical circumstances were after 10, 20, or 30 years. So in a prospective study, we started to interview the patients, all the consecutive patients in 10 Dutch hospitals who survived the cardiac arrest. So then you don't have a selection of patients. And you can all the things you want to know beforehand. So we wanted to, to see the EEG, we wanted to see the medical uh, medication he had used, but he wanted to know how long the period of unconsciousness was, how many times he had defibrillation, etc. Those are important details to understand the entire situation. Exactly. Yeah. So what we found in seeing that 44 consecutive patients who survived cardiac arrest, that 82% uh, didn't have any memories from the period of unconsciousness, but contrary, 18% reported an NDE with all the classical elements you can have, like being aware of, aware of being dead, uh, having experienced a turtle, uh, a light, or being a light, meeting deceased relatives, communicating with them, seeing a life review, reliving your life, sometimes future events, uh, coming to a border where you know when you cross this border, you will never come back. Then you are set back usually by a voice or some of the disease relatives say, it's not your time yet. You have not a time, a task to fulfill. And you come conscious back in your body, which is awful because we have a heart attack or we have a, a cardiac accident, a, a traffic accident. You have all things broke, you have pain, etc. So you feel the pain again of your body. So uh, it's not easy at all to come back in your body when you have an EMS experience. So I've, I've heard. I wonder too, there's a lot of people who have um, lack of oxygen to the brain and therefore can have some form of brain damage. How, but there's a lot of people who also have miraculous recoveries. Well, the, the first thing is that what we found out to our surprise that the severity of lack of oxygen of the brain, anoxia of the brain, so the duration of cardiac arrest, two minutes or eight minutes, the duration of unconsciousness is five minutes of three week in coma, the complicated CPR with the, the artificial respiration, uh, but also a short uh, fibrillation in the cath lab, didn't match at all. 
So we could exclude anoxia as an explanation for the cause of content for the NE. And we also know that patients can have in the death experience or appears of enhanced consciousness in meditation, in isolation, in, in depression, existential crisis, in fear death, in, uh, in traffic uh, accidents that don't happen or part of being accidents. Uh, you can have it in the end stage of life in death, in the death uh, of a deathbed ex uh, experience of end of life experience. So you know, there are many air circumstances where you have this kind of ex uh, enhanced consciousness, but there is no lack of oxygen in the brain at all. We could exclude oxygen, lack of oxygen, as an yes. explanation for the NE, which was the first time we could exclude it. Right. The fear of death and psychological explanation was not the case. Uh, uh, religion, if you were Christian or atheist, didn't matter at all. Uh, education didn't matter at all. So we could exclude all the medical, physiological, uh, demographic explanations why a patient has an NE. There was a second part of our study, a longitudinal study. And it is, we, we, we had all the survivors with an NDE. We interviewed a taped interview two and eight years after the cardiac arrest. There's a mesh control group of patients who survived the cardiac arrest with the same uh, sex and interval uh, and age to see if the transformation, which is classical for the death of kids, they lose the fear of death, they believe in an afterlife. They have a new insight what is important in life. They feel connected with every, everybody. They have compassion and love towards themselves as towards others and enhance intuitive sensitivity. It was the only study with a prospective design about the transformation. And what we found in this longitudinal study is that only the patients with the adaptive experience have this classical transformation. People with a cardiac arrest without and they also change a bit but not the way NE have transformation, which means that uh, is a kind of objective aspect of the subjective experience. We cannot scientifically prove a subjective experience. We cannot prove what you feel, what you think, what you tell us. But the objective aspect is a transformation, and that proves that the NE gives the transformation. And we know from, from um, children under the age of four who don't remember the ND, but they still have the transformation, that the transformation is essential to assume that people have an ND. So the 82% that I was seeing who didn't mention the ND didn't change at all. So I think that they didn't have any NDE at all. Right. So that was, and so the study was published in the Lancet in 2001. In your book, which we're talking about, the, it's called Consciousness Beyond Life, The Science of the Near-Death Experience. You have broken down your study, other studies. You have broken down all of the elements of the, the arguments for and against near-death experiences and the explanations as such. But I wanted to jump to the quantum physics section because that is just mind-blowing in itself. First of all, quantum physics is just an analogy to understand consciousness and to understand the electric spaces. What we know from the people who share the NE with us that there's no beginning nor will be an end to consciousness. And when they experience the NE in two minutes, they can talk about it for one week because everything happens at the same moment and they are everywhere at the same moment. So there's no time nor space 
secure their experience and they can experience the past, they can experience the future. So it is beyond time and beyond space and everything is connected. If you connect with people who have lived, if you connect with uh, events that will, will have happened in the future. So what we know from quantum physics that everything is always connected instantaneously beyond time, beyond space. So consciousness is in, in a non-local reality in the form of waves, perhaps scalar waves. And what we experience in our body as our waking consciousness is just a small aspect of this non-local consciousness. We just, our waking consciousness is just a small aspect. What we remember, the memories we have, is just a small aspect of all memories there are. And during an NDE, we know that we have many more memories than we have now when we talk to each other. So the access is much better. So the brain function for me is a kind of interface or transceiver or a filter. So you see, we see just a small part. And the interesting is that people that they need, the threshold to receive consciousness has changed permanently, what is called the enhanced intuitive sensitivity. It means they, they can know what other people think and feel they have prognostic being, they have visions, they have uh, incoming phone call. So their reception ability has changed permanently. So they don't receive channel one, their own consciousness, channel two, three or four of other consciousness as well. So it means again that the brain has a facilitating function, not a producing function of consciousness. So consciousness is always there and consciousness must be fundamental in the universe. And we can just experience a small part of it, but everything, all, all conditional love, all unlimited wisdom is stored in this universal or cosmic consciousness. And then I'm going to jump back to placebo effect and neuroplasticity. Yes. yes. Because that That's seems all. to be the missing link. <laughs> well, that's interesting. You know, that, uh, what we know from placebo effect, where you receive uh, medication for severe depression or for Parkinson's disease or for pain, chronic pain, <clears throat> and you believe that you uh, receive a real medical medication, but it is just a placebo, it's just sugar, then you still will improve. And when you look at the brain, you see the same changes in the brain as when you give real medication. So when you believe you receive medication, then your body, yeah, your body and your brain changes as well. So the immune system changes as well. Your brain function changes as well. So the structure and the function of the brain changes, in other words, it changes in consciousness. And we also know the same thing by people who meditate. When you do meditation six weeks, you also can see changes in the electrical activity of the brain and the EEG. We have people who meditate for 40 years, they have a permanent change in function and structure as well. And again, a temporary change when they meditate actively. So it's mind over matter. The consciousness changes the function and the structure of the body and brain. Amazing, isn't it? That's I know it's a huge statement, right? Yeah, and and it's not something to take lightly. Dr. Van Lommel, how has this changed you? 
not quite a lot. I was reluctant to accept um, the idea that consciousness comes first. And, uh, but I have met uh, thousands of people within the database who share the idea with me. I have had tens of thousands of emails from all over the world. People who share the idea with me and say, you're the first one who can listen. I, I, can, I can be open to you. So this changed my, my insight in, in life and death. It changed my insight in how to live. Uh, so are far more aware of how we treat each other and how we treat nature and uh, how we treat the endangered planet. How we have to change our consciousness to change the world and to change the future for our children and grandchildren. So uh, the way we live at home here, in silence, we beautiful house, beautiful garden, close to nature. Each year, at least one hour in nature, walking there. So um, we have biological food that we eat. Yeah. My wife is vegetarian. I, I, I'm about vegetarian, not really, but we don't eat meat at all. And hardly any fish. So we changed a lot. And, uh, and I think that when you meet people with any and talk to them, it will change. Because it's so emotional, so impressive. So uh, they're reluctant to share with them. So I resonate with those people as well. Right, right. I have a quote to what you were just saying, uh, a quote uh, from your, your book. According to quantum theory, everything is interconnected. There is no local cause for an event. And when an event takes place, it instantly changes the entire universe. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what we have learned from, from uh, quantum physics, but again, it's an analogy for consciousness. It's not an explanation for consciousness. And I believe that consciousness as well as information must be fundamental in the universe. And I'm not the only one. Right, right. <laughs> yes, because do we still have an under or do we have an understanding of how anesthesia actually works? Because from my understanding, that's still a mystery. Well, we, we know that, yes, because when you measure the uh, EEG in patients with a general anesthesia, you see changes in the EEG, but it's not a fat line. But we know that to have awakened consciousness, to being awake, the, the many centers in the cortex work together, exchange information and exchange, and they are connected as well. And by general anesthesia, you break the connection, you break the information exchange. So there's still activity in the brain, but no communication anymore. And that gives the lack of consciousness. That's what you call anesthesia. And it's the same with sleep. You don't, where is your consciousness when you sleep? There's activity in the brain, but you don't experience consciousness. So the perception function, the filter function, the interface function of the brain has stopped. But the brain is still active. There are two different things. This is the global neuronal network which you need to experience consciousness. And during cardiac arrest, there's no such activity at all. We know even that in EEG flat lines within 10 to 20 seconds. And so and, and clinical findings in cardiac arrest that there's, so they are conscious, there are no uh, functions of the cortex, there's no for, uh, reflexes of the body, there are no brain stem reflexes, there are play, there's no breathing because the breathing center is close to the brain stem. And it, you measure the EEG, there's no activity at all. So the clinical findings and the 
fatality eating, that we know that there is no brain function left, but still patients can have the enhanced consciousness with cognition, emotion, perception out and about the body, etc. Tell me about Pam Reynolds, because that was an interesting case. Yeah. <laughs> Pam Reynolds was a lady who had a, a, an aneurysm in her brain artery. An aneurysm is a very weak part, but it's like a balloon, and a balloon can collapse. So it's, it's life-threatening. And the time that when she lived, she was operatable. Today, we do it with catheters. We, we block the aneurysm by catheters, but at that time, you have to operate it. So she was uh, operated upon in, in, in Houston. And first of all, you get general anesthesia. And then uh, the body is cooled down and the brain is cooled down. And then uh, you get connected with a heart-lung machine, like in the, uh, cardiac surgery. And there you lift the body that you had up. So all the blood of the brain has gone. And then you can do the operation. So you open the skull and the, the surgeon uh, took out the aneurysm. Uh, surprisingly, and, and also they, you measure the brain cell activity by, by clicking devices in the ear. They didn't work anymore. So her EEG was flat, there was no blood to the brain, the brain cell didn't function, and then she had a very intense near-death experience at the moment. She bent out met uh, deceased relatives, communicating with them, met a life review. And she was sent back by her uncle into the body, but she didn't want to. She came back in the operation room. She saw her cold body and said, I don't want to go. And her uncle pushed her back in this cold body, which was awful for her as well. So there's a kind of a few cases where everything was recorded that the brain function didn't work at all. There was no blood in the brain. And still she had an enhanced consciousness with Possibility of perception, cognition, emotion, meeting disease, relatives, etc. Dr. Eben Alexander, who's been on this show as well, yeah. talks about in his book, Living in a Mindful Universe, he, he made some comment about three psychedelic studies that all ended up having a similar finding with regards to the brain and psychedelics. So just briefly, what they all discovered was that as the psychedelic experience increased, the brain actually shut down, which was counterintuitive to what was expected, that there should be heightened activity because of these psychedelic drugs. First of all, not everybody who uses psychedelic drugs get an enhanced consciousness experience. Sometimes it is an awful negative hallucinations, etc. So depending on the circumstances of the doses, etc., if you will experience enhanced consciousness. The second thing is that just parts of the brain diminish activity not the whole brain. So parts of the brain which are important diminish activity at the same moment we have enhanced consciousness. For me, it only, it's just a small percentage of patients who use LSD or Arashka or psilocybin vegetables have this kind of experiences. But for me, important is that they have a transformation as well. If they have a transformation, then they have a real enhanced consciousness experience with transformation, but only a small part of it. And then again, as you quoted, a part of the brain is less active as normal with an enhanced consciousness. And in the case of Evan Alexander, his whole cortex didn't function at all. He was, his, the chance to survive was less than 1%. And he survived without any 
problems later. So the, the way he revived, recovered, is because he had the death experience, because the death, people with the death experience have a, a self-healing capacity as well. But Alexander is a great example for this. It's the way he, he survived as a normal function again is because he had the NDE. Absolutely. I mean, all of his faculties are intact and he's functioning at high capacity. It's, a, it's yes. miraculous. It's miraculous, really. The out-of-body experience versus illusion or the illusion versus an out-of-body experience. Um, again, another quote, an illusion is an apparent reality or a false sense of reality, whereas an out-of-body experience involves a verifiable perception from a position outside and above the body of a resuscitation or the, a traffic accident or operation and of the surroundings in which it took place. An observation with verifiable aspects is by definition not an illusion. Exactly. Totally right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a problem with the medical literature. There are that uh, neurologists over Blanc in Switzerland, but also uh, neurologists from Belgium have published papers where they say we, are, we could induce out of body experiences. But the only thing they could induce was an illusion of people out of the body. They never had critical perception out of the body. Of the body. So, in and out of body experience during NDE, but you also have other circumstances as well. They, they, see, they perceive your body, don't see it because they are out of the body, they, their eyes are closed. There are even people who have been blind from birth could perceive during an NDE out of the body, the surrounding the body. For the first time, blind people could see light and colors. So and you can perceive 360 degrees, not your eyes are just a small amount of, of, of you. And they, they see the details and overview at the same time. And they know what is being said and they know what being thought as well, that you are above your body in during operation, during, during CPR. So you could corroborate this uh, theoretical perceptions. And this has been done many times. And I've written a book, The Self Does Not Die, and also a chapter in a book by, uh, by Eyes, by Jen Holden. So more than 200 cases have been corroborated that it proves that during cardiac arrest, during unconsciousness, people could perceive the details it was impossible to perceive from a position out and above the body. They see a body there and then at once it's, oh, that's my body, but I'm here, I'm feeling fine. So it's totally different. They realize that they're out of the body and that they are not their body. And, uh, that's a very important aspect of, of, of NDE as well. Now, I know that you talked about, was it you yourself or your team, you had placed something in the top corner of an operating room to the test? Hidden side. <laughs> the hidden and nobody saw it. First of all, people are resuscitated in the street, in the ambulance, in the elevator, in, in, in the hospital, wherever they are, in intensive care unit, in the coronary care unit, on the ward. You cannot put hidden sites everywhere. But we had one resuscitation where we had the hidden sites. Uh, Petty Satori has done it in the UK. Uh, Sampani is doing it in the US. Until now, there has been no patient report who have seen this hidden sign. Now, the question is why? And, and I always say that when we are in our body and you drive a car, 
and you drove to to the studio area now and i asked you about the surrounding did you see the house did you see the tree did you, you say, no, I didn't see that. The scientists would say that you haven't driven there. They have been, you haven't been there. But for to perceive something, to see something, you need attention and intention. Intention is you want to see it, and attention, you have to draw attention to it as well. Now, when you're out of your body, close to the ceiling, you see your own resuscitation, you see your operation. You don't start to look around if there are some hidden signs somewhere. So it's what's called the inintentional blindness. And I quote also the, the, the scientific literature about inintentional blindness. When you use your mobile phone driving a car, there are many more accidents because you say, I didn't see the car coming, but because your attention was close to the mobile phone and not to the traffic. So you can do only one thing. So you out of body experience, when you are so surprised to be there, you see your own body, you don't start to look around. Right. Probably the explanation that there is until now no what people will call an objective proof. But for me, the objective proof is the cooperation of critical aspects, uh, critical perceptions. Tell me about the dentures and the nurse. The story oh, yeah. of the gentleman with the dentures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of things we had in our study as well. So a 44-year-old man was brought into a hospital. Uh, it was found in a matter of about 30 minutes before, and, and people just started to do some chest compression. And uh, in ambulance, they started to resuscitate with several defibrillation without any success. So when he came into the cardiac ward in the coronary care unit, he was already cold, had, had, was blue, uh, there was no circulation, no blood pressure, deeply unconscious. His uh, pupils didn't react, react to light. They didn't breathe. So the first thing the nurse was doing to give him artificial respiration to, int, to give an intubation, to put a, something in his throat to give him more oxygen. And if, the nurse found out that he had dentures at the margin. So took out the dentures and put it some on the flashcard, some other some And he needed one and a half hour before this patient had blood pressure and circulation again, but he was still unconscious and still needed artificial respiration. So it was transferred to the intensive care unit to continue artificial respiration for one week. He was one week in coma. And then he came back on the cardiac ward. And the moment he was back on the cardiac ward, the nurse came in for medication. He saw the nurse, he said, you know where my dentures are. And he told the nurse, you took my dentures out of my mouth. And you took it, put it somewhere on the slider underneath the car with all those bottles on it. And you could describe the resuscitation where he was brought into in coma and was, has left in coma. You could describe the, the patients of the nurse and doctor who were with the CPR. This all happens when there was no circulation at all. It was cold, it was blue, no circulation, no breathing, deeply unconscious. And so that was a kind of cooperation of veridical perception. Absolutely. So I don't need more proof for it. <laughs> right. <laughs> I talked to the nurse and the nurse over. Yeah. yeah. No, the, those are amazing, verifiable stories. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's also an intriguing case that somebody saw during Andy his deceased grandmother and the man he didn't know but looked lovingly to him. He didn't know who the man was. And 10 years later, at the death of her mother, her mother confessed that he was born out of an extramarital relationship. And this man was a Jewish man who was 
murdered by the, by, by, he was Jewish, he was murdered by, by the Germans. And he died. And she showed him a picture. And the man he had seen 10 years before, and he happened to be his biological father. Oh my goodness. That mom's when I child. <laughs> so aggressive. So you see people you don't know, but they still have a relation to them. Well, what, yes, when you get information non-locally, and you can verify that after the fact. It's yeah. very strong evidence. Very strong evidence. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm just also, I, I love quotes. Psychiatrist Ian Stevenson had said, it's been said that there's nothing so troublesome as a new idea. And I think that's particularly true in science. I keep yes, going back true. to that because I can ah. see <laughs> and understand how materialist science scientists their brains are just exploding with, uh, this can't be real, this can't be true, there's an explanation. I see if it's a bit under studies in reincarnation. Mm -hmm. But many times, in many cases, you're very, and he always said, I cannot prove reincarnation, but it is beyond reasonable doubt. But still, most scientists didn't believe it. And it's the same with the death experience, if you've got the best. Most scientists are still materialists, cannot believe that there is conscious experience possible when the brain doesn't function. They don't believe it because it just fit in their dogma. So we need to change the paradigm in science, what you really call the post-materialist paradigm. We have to, and the current materialist science only includes something that we can objectify, what we can measure, what we duplicate, what we can falsify. Now, what you think and feel, your inner experience, you cannot objectify, you cannot prove, you cannot falsify, you cannot duplicate. So your consciousness, the content of your consciousness is beyond current science. So we have to expand science towards the, what we call the post-material science to include subjective experiences. And then we can understand the death experiences as well. What are you up to lately, Dr. Van Lommel? Are you doing presentations? Are you doing um, different uh, activities due to your winning essay? Yeah. Well, in, in, uh, about 20 years ago, less than 20 years ago, I, I republished the article on The Lancet. And it took me about 50 hours a week for the death experience and 60, 70 hours a week for, for cardiology. So I stopped. I retired early to the to do research on the death experience to do full-time research so we published i published several articles in mainstream peer-reviewed journals i published a book uh, in 2007 was the, uh, translated into english consciousness beyond life but it be now translated into 11 languages chinese rich whatever french italian spanish german um, about oh, absolutely. About 350, more than 350,000 copies have been sold. And in Holland, my book has now in the 27th print, or more than 150,000 copies in, in, in the Netherlands. So there's still a lot of interest for the general population, but not by scientists. Because, and I understand it also because they're frightened. But it could be true. And everything, what they have said and written, and all the research that I received for the research looking into the way where consciousness is located, 
they lose everything. So I know scientists who privately tell me you could be right, but officially said this is total nonsense until they retire. And then they say, well, it could be right. <laughs> so, they, so they're frightened that they're wrong. So uh, they can be very aggressive as well. But the majority of the general population is open to it. I, I mean, 25 million, more than 25 million people in the world must have had a near-death experience. And unfortunately, more than half of them are still silent about it. They have to share it with others, but the people don't listen. Doctors don't listen, nurses don't listen. The party doesn't listen within uh, about 70% uh, had a divorce because the party, it's not the same person as I married before. So it has a real impact. And when you have an idea, it's, it's a spiritual trauma. Years of depression, years of loneliness, years of homesickness until you meet someone where you can share with you, and then you have to integrate it. So it takes 10, 20, 30 years to integrate it, to change the way you live. So it's a trauma. It has a positive content, but very negative results in our Western society. I always say as a joke, when you have an enemy in India, you will be welcomed. But when you have to the Western world, you're just stupid, and <laughs> people are afraid to share with others. I was going to make a comment about the scientists being scared because from my understanding of consciousness i find it there's a personal element to it it if you really look into it the way you have it will affect you and change you personally because you have to look at your own personal beliefs right and a lot of people don't want to do that <laughs> a lot of people who don't accept my ideas haven't read my book or haven't read my articles but they just have an opinion but they don't have a literature. Right. Because when you should read the literature, they're afraid to change. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But that's okay. That's We just all need to do our, our part, our work. And yes. people yeah. need to make their own choices and decisions. Dr. Van Lummel, where can we find you on the internet? What is your website? Uh, you, you can do www.pimvanlummel.nl or .com, but also consciousbeyondlive.com. You can find my scientific articles, you can have interviews, television programs, whatever you want to have. It is in Dutch, English, and German. And, uh, so you can download all the articles as well. So you can have a lot of information. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for being with me today and sharing your knowledge. And congratulations again on the essay. It, it's such a pleasure, Dr. Van Lomme. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Life Continuing. A special thanks to Dr. Pim Van Lummel. For more on Dr. Van Lummel and to read his book, please go to pimvanlummel.nl/en. The advisor to the show is Amanda Capito. The music for this podcast was composed by Richard Farron. I'm your host, Tanya Berg. Make sure to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts and follow on Instagram at Life Continuing Podcast. And check out wellnesscontinuing.com for spiritual tools and resources to elevate your heart-mind. And be sure to join me next time, where we'll continue this conversation about life continuing.